Reproductive rights in the United States are in their most precarious position since before Roe vs. Wade. Not only does it look like the new radically right-wing majority on the Supreme Court will overturn Roe in the near future, but conservative states have made it practically impossible for women to visit abortion providers. And all this despite the fact that a majority of Americans favor keeping Roe. Reproductive choice isn't just a cause in itself. It's also necessary for working people to fulfill all of our political and economic rights. If Roe is overturned, and even if Christian dominionists succeed in creating a federal law against abortion, wealthy and privileged people will still never have to face the consequences of unintended or unhealthy pregnancy. But alongside all these immediately pressing political questions, we find cultural and ideological assumptions. In um, anti-abortion discourses, it really means that we don't have really in-depth conversations about the society that we live in and why that society makes abortion look the way that it does. Claire McKinney's work on the language of reproductive politics shows the many ways that we relegate the social weight of reproduction into a private realm where women and gender non-conforming people, particularly working class folks, are supposed to deal with the expense, pain, stigma, moral condemnation, interaction with disability and access issues, all of those things by themselves. This is how we're divided and how we're disempowered, by preventing the socialization of and public deliberation on the reasons why access to abortion is a public good and a prerequisite for emancipation. Much liberal pro-choice rhetoric representing abortion as an unfortunate, tragic, and private choice that should be protected doesn't help protect reproductive rights. Professor McKinney teaches political theory at the College of William and Mary and is a longtime friend of Solidarity House Cooperative. That's us. This is Cowboys on the Commons, a podcast about cooperative law, economics, politics, and culture produced by Solidarity House Cooperative. If you like having conversations like the one you're about to hear with Claire McKinney, please go to patreon.com solidarityhouse and become a subscriber. We are concerned, I think, uh, on the show about socializing various aspects of what uh, you know, we have sort of traditionally privatized and uh, that, you know, we've had some good conversations in the past about where reproductive politics fits into that. Uh, and so I'm really excited about talking to you about your work. And the first question I want to ask is, how have your, your research on reproductive rights, your advocacy for reproductive freedom, and your political progression all kind of fellow traveled together? Yeah, so that's a, a really great question. So um, I think the core of how these things have developed is a real sense that um, we actually don't have a public conversation about these issues, reproductive rights, reproductive freedom, um, nearly as much as we ought to. And that might feel or sound a little bit shocking because it seems like at least you know perennially, uh, we'll have very loud shouting matches about abortion politics at the very least. Um, but I kind of think that all of that kind of shouting about what side we're on has actually made it so that we don't actually have a politics 
of reproduction uh, in this country so much as we have a moral discourse about it. And so I became really interested in thinking about abortion politics specifically when uh, I saw some public opinion data, as one sees in graduate school, about um, how steady um, public opinion is concerning abortion. And I was really interested in one mark of seeing how consistently high support in the case of fetal impairment is. And that really struck me as odd because somebody coming from a Catholic background, I had always interpreted pro-life politics as being about the protection of the most vulnerable. Um, And instead, this seemed to be something about discarding the most vulnerable. I really became interested in how prevalent a kind of neo-eugenic argument has become about how we deal with impaired fetuses. Um, And so here, I saw kind of a perfect example of exactly how the privatization of decision-making has left in place the idea of individual women managing um, their relationship to disability as a matter of kind of medical responsibility rather than having a public discussion about disability rights, a public discussion about what are the necessary social supports for people to have the sorts of families that they want. So I became kind of an advocate for us to be doing more in terms of social support. I speak more on thinking about abortion politics and abortion rights in connection to disability advocacy um, and have kind of done some volunteer work around escorting at Planned Parenthoods to help people have a sense of uh, belonging and community around their reproductive lives. Let me see if I'm getting your argument correctly, that women can't give public reasons for having abortions because uh, of this uh, sort of liberal insistence on keeping those reasons private. Uh, And conservatives, of course, don't allow any such reasons or discourse to filter through their moral framework. Is that an accurate piece of the puzzle? Yeah, I think that's really important. So a few years ago, for instance, Planned Parenthood started what they call the Not In Her Shoes campaign, which was this new social media campaign to shift away from the language of pro-choice to the language of um, you shouldn't be judging others. Um, But really kind of core to that was this should be a decision between a woman, her family, her religious advisors, and her physician, right? So what that means, though, is that we don't actually have a public discussion about what sort of reasons people do have for seeking abortions. Um, And as you said, you know, when combined with uh, the persistence of abortion stigma in um, anti-abortion discourses, it really means that we don't have really in-depth conversations about the society that we live in and why that society makes abortion look the way that it does. Our discussion uh, several months ago with Sophie Lewis on surrogacy went down an interesting path about the noble tragedy of childbirth, the the suffering of childbirth as nobility. Uh, And I'm thinking of your work on that there is perhaps a, a parallel or an analog there on sort of a valorization and other treatment of of non-viability and the the tragedy with the happy ending. Can you you talk about that? Yeah, so uh, one of the 
public discourses that we do have about abortion is what I call the tragic abortion story. So in these stories, it's really about recuperating a normative kind of form of motherhood where uh, women are allowed to say this was a wanted pregnancy, this was a planned pregnancy, and then something unexpected and tragic happened. And so this forced me into a decision that otherwise I didn't want. Um, and so you could think about this in the context of um, abortions that threaten the health or life of a pregnant person or abortions that would re result in a fetal impairment often to this point of quote unquote um, incompatible with life. Um, and so without kind of denying that these are lived tragedies for the people expressing it, there's a real problem that in this kind of keep it private versus all abortions are murder sort of discourse, the only way to avoid abortion stigma is to say this wasn't really my choice. This really wasn't my decision. Um, unfortunately, right, that sort of discourse is only available to women who we look to as um, valuable mothers. And so this often reinforces ideas of white, affluent, heterosexual, married women as the ones who can make recourse to this kind of tragic abortion story. So that means that we still have a whole set of people for whom their motherhood is disqualified, whether that's genderqueer people, uh, women of color, women who require state support, or uh, non-heterosexual women, right? So now we have this kind of pluralizing of the delegitimation of motherhood for a whole category or you know, swaths of categories of people. Um, at the same time, right, that kind of recourse to tragedy in the context of uh, fetal impairment relies on creating a kind of anti-disability trope of the tragedy of any disabled life. And so while that tragedy for a long time was very widely understood, that is kind of any sort of impairment would be uh, tragic. Uh, today, that discourse is narrowed so much to be mainly about this idea of being incompatible um, with life. And so on the one hand, this can see a, a, a society moving in a greater acceptance of people with disabilities. Um, but what it actually does is it once again reinvests in the idea that if medicine tells us that this is a legitimate decision, then it must be legitimate. What that does for abortion politics is that it means we still aren't having a conversation about what might be good social reasons for seeking to have an abortion which means that we don't really have a feminist discourse at all. Um, on the other hand, what it does is that it um, allows the decision of how, what, how disabled is too disabled to once again be a medical question instead of a question about what we prioritize in society. What sort of social supports will we give for early interventions, for um, non-segregated public education, for continued support into adulthood, and for integration of people into wider social communities that exceed the question of employment. And so I see this kind of way of um, constructing the idea of what it means to be a good mother to almost always require this distancing from disability as, a, as opposed to the idea that we could remake our families to be disability inclusive and inclusive of people who want to make different reproductive decisions. Uh, what, so what would a... Uh a socialized reason uh, or a public reason in, a, in an authentic sense where, where people can be in the public square authentically, 
what does that a reason for abortion look like maybe in that world uh, in that it transcends this public-private dichotomy, uh, represents abortion as both social and personal goods or social necessities because it's personal necessities? Have you thought much about how it looks on the other side? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really inspired by the work of a political theorist named Rosalind Pacheski. Um, and she has a notion that um, when we think about how people come to make decisions about their reproductive lives, they're engaging in what she calls a morality of praxis. And what this means is that um, we're always kind of involved in this uh, decision-making that's thinking about ethics, but that ethics is not just a kind of universalized good or bad, but it is that kind of integration of uh, one's own personal life circumstances, one's social expectations, the fact that there is an anti-abortion politics that's going to be calling you a murderer, the fact that you may have religious beliefs kind of influencing this. And all those things kind of combine to give a certain kind of horizon for how people make decisions about their reproductive lives. So part of this is the fact that the majority of people who seek abortions do so because of economic or education reasons. That is, they can't keep their job if they're pregnant, they can't afford to have a child given the expectations of what a, a good childhood looks like. Um, that they feel like they would have to interrupt their education and so wouldn't be able to pursue what a good life looks to them. These are kind of the most common um, explanations given, and I think their commonality should direct us into thinking about what would a kind of more inclusive and less kind of sacrificial world would look like. At the same time, right, other people have um, reasons that I feel like are also kind of social, which is I see my life as one being um, connected to particular types of people and particular forms of configuration. I mean, a parent is not part of that horizon. Um, and so an unintended pregnancy as part of that is, I think, part of this kind of socialized reason giving that we have to imagine the capacity for women to see themselves not only as mothers, right, but as people pursuing other visions of the good life. Um, and that kind of, that's why I'm really drawn by the language of reproductive freedom, right? So thinking about freedom as this uh, capacity to imagine beyond the given, creating new lives and new possibilities. That new life and new possibility doesn't have to be tied to reproduction, um, but Thinking about one's freedom in relationship to reproduction allows for that kind of imagining of new new life worlds. And where would maybe the idea of uh, a person's choice not to be a mother because of the shitty state of the world or the you know sort of climate crisis, those kinds of things, um, where along the the spectrum, or if there is a spectrum, would those kind of explanations lie? There actually is a discourse right now amongst some women who are making the decision not to have um, children because of the climate crisis, right? Like if you look at those charts about the things that you can do to reduce your carbon uh, impact in the world, the most individual one is not having a child. Now, I think that those sort of things are oh, very- my, And it's so cringy, I'm sorry. It's just, <laughs> there's a cringiness to it, but I know you're gonna get to that. I, yeah. I just, I would be derelict in my sincerity <laughs> if I did not say that. Right, exactly. So my, my kind of first issue with that is that it once again makes it seem like climate crisis is 
the result of individuals rather than systematic structural ways that we have organized uh, pollution and organized carbon emissions on kind of large scale processes like, you know, CAFOs and industrial agriculture, like massive pollution um, in terms of transportation, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this kind of notion of the personalization of responsibility is again, kind of a huge issue for me, right? The other problem though, with these kind of climate discourses is that they actually tap into a much older eugenic and overpopulation discourse that ultimately works to um, criminalize explicitly or uh, sometimes kind of in less explicit ways regulate and surveil the reproduction, especially of poor women and women of color. Right? So the concern of eugenics was, especially in the 19th century and early 20th century, the idea that we are breeding for the good of society. And so uh, it is legitimate to forcibly sterilize people whose um, reproduction was seen as a danger to the flourishing of the race. And here the race is very explicitly the white race. And so um, the organization of sterilization of um, Native American populations, Latinx populations, and uh, black women in the United States were accompanied by this kind of uh, sterilization of people who were deemed to be intellectually disabled. And this is, I mean, it's still constitutional. Buck v. Bell, which uh, rendered it constitutional to sterilize those institutionalized for intellectual disability, that's still on the books. Um, and so this, this impulse to protect the future of civilization is there from kind of the outset of the reproductive control discourses. Fast forwarding to the 1960s and 70s, the concern was overpopulation. Overpopulation is creating environmental destruction and increasing the likelihood of things like civil war. It was targeted at people in Puerto Rico, people in India, and then in the United States, um, in the, in the uh, uh, 48 states, it was directed towards welfare recipients. And so here you actually see a discourse supporting the liberalization of abortion laws on the basis of the fact that then abortion could be a technique of population control, right? And so again, you get this kind of replication of the idea of a um, socialized responsibility, but in ways that are about the regulation, surveillance, and criminalization of particular bodies, right? And I think that that's a threat with this current kind of climate discourse the idea that the best way to go about this is regulating the population. Um, that discourse is cropping up though, and I think it's something that we have to think about. Lastly, here's an open invitation for you to talk about your new book. Great, so uh, as yet untitled, um, provisionally titled A Healthy Body Politic, um, the purpose of the book is to help us rethink abortion politics and ethics by putting medicine in the center of how uh, abortion politics came to look like what they look like. So beginning in the 19th century, it was the American Medical Association that first began the campaign to criminalize abortion at every stage of pregnancy. Um, and other scholars and historians have pointed to how this was about um, this kind of eugenic consideration of immigrants coming in, the desire to increase the authority of the medical profession against other um, therapeutic practitioners like homeopaths, um, and the desire to kind of regulate women's bodies 
I want to take it a step further and think about how discourses about scientific truth um, and knowledge about women's correct roles becomes part of this kind of professionalization of medicine that sticks with how physicians think about their role, even whenever they switch to being the kind of at the forefront of looking to liberalize abortion laws in the United States, uh, beginning in the 1950s and the 1960s. And all of that, I think, helps us rethink why U.S. abortion law and politics looks the way it does, because it's both the fact that those who are anti-abortion and those in favor of abortion access still speak in the language of health and the authority of biological truth as a way to kind of ground the legitimacy of our claims. What that means is that the kind of feminist claims have been drowned out in really crucially unhelpful ways. Um, and it could be that if we return to that kind of question of what feminism could tell us about abortion, we might have a more robust and uh, thoughtful and more public conversation about these things. It's both looking at kind of this question of the politics and the law of abortion, and then thinking about how we might articulate a different ethics of abortion that exceeds both the um, pro-life discourse that is overly biological and the pro-choice discourse that overly privatizes our understanding of abortion. What is your assessment quickly, or I guess not quickly, um, of the current political moment where uh, abortion is concerned? It, it, um, there's a lot of things at work that, that I see. Um, and I think that your point that we are using the same discourse that we've always used uh, is very interesting given sort of the accelerated political moment of abortion right now in the, you know, with the current administration and uh, the current, you know, kind of sea change in the courts and such. Yeah, I think that there are um, two main issues that maybe help us think through our current moment, which I agree is a, a large acceleration of anti-abortion uh, victories. Uh, that is really destroying the capacity for us to imagine a, a more just reproductive world. So um, the first is a legal change that goes back to 1992 um, with Planned Parenthood v. Casey, where the Supreme Court stopped speaking in the language of privacy, which has a whole host of problems, but it starts speaking in the language of liberty. Um, and once we start talking about women's liberty and not privacy, um, that actually kind of uh, invites the state to engage in more intrusive regulation of women. And I think that that is mainly ideological, right? So when we were speaking in the language of privacy, um, there's still a sense that women are being mediated by their public representative. So, you know, in the 19th century, privacy meant that women were mediated by the protection of their husbands, in the 20th century that was mediated in the context of the patient-physician relationship. And so you had these kind of patriarchal orders that still downplayed the role of women. But with Planned Parenthood v. Casey, now we're talking about the women's autonomy kind of unvarnished from this mediation of a different patriarchal order. And so I claim that Planned Parenthood v. Casey became a renewed justification for the state as a patriarchal actor to deliberately and directly control women's decision-making um, as legitimate state interest. And so the undue burden standard um, of Casey that said any law 
um, that has kind of like a reasonable justification, so long as it is not an undue burden in the exercise of the right to um, liberty, the right to abortion, um, it could stand. The past kind of 15 years have seen the real acceleration in the taking up of that undue burden standard as justifying almost any form of um, anti-abortion legislation. The second big transformation, I think, is in how ideological pro-life discourse is. I, I say pro-life here very deliberately because I think it is the ideology of life that has come to excuse ever more draconian anti-abortion laws. Um, when fetal life becomes the overwhelming consideration, not only does this kind of support um, some really, I, I think, gross, <laughs> I guess is the, sim the simplest way to put it, a lot of gross comparisons to things like Nazi genocide or chattel slavery, that discourse of life becomes a, a way to say that the violence done to fetuses could overwhelm whatever violence is done in the name to protect fetal life. Um, and so for a while in the 1980s and 90s, this became expressed in um, escalating anti-abortion clinic violence, including the murder of abortion doctors, George Tiller being the most kind of recent and high profile one. Um, but today, I think that that more and more is becoming a justification to use the law in its most draconian sense. And so not only is this about passing um, anti-abortion laws that should not um, survive constitutional muster, but very, very, uh, they may very well do that. It's also the fact that now more and more these laws are calling for things like the um, imprisonment of women for life, uh, if not the death penalty. And I think that's all a consequence of how much a pro-life discourse has become ideological in the kind of late 20th century, early 21st century. Now we're kind of reaping the, the fruit of that, um, of those decisions, of those languages. Claire McKinney, thank you very much for all of your work and uh, for especially taking a stand. Thank you for letting me uh, chat with you today. It was really wonderful.